We are going to continue our new sermon series called Jesus Reigns this week. Uh, we, are, we started it last week, and we're in the Gospel of, Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 for the majority of the rest of the year. Uh, what we're looking at is the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And so uh, next week we'll hear about the, the, the prophecy that foretold, or the angel speaking to, to Mary uh, of Jesus coming. Uh, but, but today we look at, we're going to meet some characters, some different people in the Bible who we will not only hear about today, but some of them we'll see later on in, in the story of Jesus. And so uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, it's our gift to you. You can take it, keep it, read it. It is about Jesus, and he's the one true king. And that's the first thing I want us to see as we begin today, that there is only one true king. So only one true king. That's the first point I want us to see. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it says this, in the days of Herod, King of Judea. See, little king. Not big king. Little king, fake king, phony king. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But there was it, it's this guy, Herod. He's the first guy we're going to meet today. And then there was a priest named Zechariah. He's the second guy. He's a godly guy of the division of uh, Abijah, uh, or Abijah. Uh, he had a wife uh, from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. That's the third person we're going to meet. And then they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commands and statutes of the Lord. The very thing we just committed, uh, the, the, uh, the couple that was just up here, that they committed uh, to walk in God's word one ways. As a, and this is what child dedication, what we just celebrated is, is exactly what Zechariah and, and Elizabeth are doing. They're walking upright according to God's word and ways, and they long to do that with their child. They're going to, but at this point, verse 7, but they had no child. They didn't have a child yet. Because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both now advanced in years. Now they're getting old. So this is the scene. This is where we're at. And I want us to see that there is only one true king. That's the first thing. That's the most important thing. And that's the only thing that's going to help this, this, this problem of barrenness uh, and shame that ultimately we'll see later that Elizabeth has is that there needs to be a king, a true king to rule, reign, and to, and to step into our darkness and to step into our pain and to, and to shine the light. And what we see, that is exactly what Jesus does. And that's what we see was foretold and prophesied. But right now, there's this guy, the first guy we meet, his name is Herod. He was known as, historically, Herod the Great. Um, uh, it says here that he is the king of Judea, which means he ruled over the Jews in that region. That's what he was. And so he, he had a self-proclaimed title uh, of king of the Jews. Um, and so he, he, he thinks highly of himself, uh, but he's not a real king. And this is the big thing we have to see. He's not actually the most high king. He not only is, I'm not just saying like, like, um, figuratively or actually, but I mean, even in the Roman uh, rulings and rankings, he's not. He's not Caesar. He's not actually the Caesar. He's not, there, there was Caesar Augustus, and he's not him. He's not him. He is not the highest ranking official, even in the Roman uh, go in government. And so he's just a, a providential leader, a providence leader of, of an area and a region that, that's been given to him by the uh, Roman uh, government to rule, and he calls himself the king of the Jews. He calls himself the king of the Jews. Now, one of the reasons is that he's, he comes from the line of, 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 uh, of Esau. If you remember Jacob and Esau, there's two brothers in this. I'm not going to give too much history lesson, but Jacob and Esau, those were two brothers. Jacob becomes Israel. In Esau, they become the Edomites. Herod's lineage is, is of the Edomites. Herod is a family name, and it's from the lineage of the Edomites. So what we really have here is this, this, this fake, phony king, uh, Herod, who is of the line of, of Esau, who is not the promised child. Uh, but we have the, the promised king uh, uh, from the line and lineage of Jacob, who is Israel. That's Jesus. So we have... The, we, 
right at the front, we see these two kingdoms kind of at odds here, and one guy who claims to be king, and he's not. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more uh, in the last sermon of the year, because this guy, Herod, is going to try to kill Jesus. So th- this is how much he hates uh, the, the idea of him being misplaced or de- deplaced and dethroned as the quote-unquote king of the Jews. Because Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews. And we talked about it at length over the past couple of weeks that Jesus is not born to be a king. He was born actually king. He, he is the king. And so uh, uh, Herod is going to do some horrific things, um, and so what we, we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks, but I want us to see that r- right off the start, uh, Luke tells us this detail that there's this man Herod, he is the king, uh, or the quote-unquote king, the little K king, he's not the real king, um, as, he, as, as Luke is going to tell of the coming true reigning king, that is Jesus. And so there can only be one true king. And so what's happening here in, in, in this time in the physical realm, I want you to see is happening in our day in the spiritual realm. Herod is going to try to kill Jesus because he's going to try to dethrone him. He wants to be Lord. He wants to be king. And so in the, in the unseen realm, there is, there's Jesus reigning as king also in the unseen and the seen realm. But Satan and demons don't like that. So there really is a battle going on in the heavenly places uh, in, in which that, that, that the heavenly forces of darkness would want to uproot Jesus as king of our hearts and, and deceive us and lie and to, to, uh, to lead us away from worshiping Jesus as the one true and rightful king. And so there can only be one true king. And so Luke makes this point here. If you'll remember why Luke was writing this gospel, one of the things that he wanted to bring is a historically accurate account. Remember that? That's what he wanted to do, bring a historical accurate account to his friend, uh, uh, right? He, he wanted Theophilus. He wanted him to hear of an accurate account. We saw that last week. And so what, what Luke is doing, he's placing specific details in con- contextual order so that people can go, okay, I get the time frame. Herod, king of the Jews, also Herod the Great, he's, he's ruling at this time. Boom. It's significant for a time period. This makes sense. This is accurate. This is the first character we meet, Herod. It's to set the time frame, the time frame for our accuracy. The second, the second person, people we meet, is Zachariah and Elizabeth. They're an old godly couple. This is awesome. This is their old godly couple. Um, right this, at this point when, it, when, in, when it's happening, they're not really, you know, when the scene is happening in real life, in real time, they're not really famous. They're famous now because, like, the Bible's been written, you know, the canon is closed, and we read about Zechariah and, and Elizabeth. But, like, they were nobodies. Like, they, no one knew about Zechariah and Elizabeth. There was just a priest, a guy, so a guy who's a pastor, has a wife who can't have kids. That's all they were. Like, that, that's what it was. And so what, uh, what Luke is doing here is he's telling us about the, the character of these people because he says they were godly. They were, they, they were righteous before God. They may not have been famous, but they were righteous. They were walking blamelessly before for God. And so the people who knew them knew, like, man, man, they, they, walk, man, they walked according to God's word in ways. It's a real bummer that they weren't able to have kids, but, you know, like, they're godly people. They're godly people. And so what I want us to see is while they're not uh, famous here and they become famous, I, I, I came across an interesting fact in our day and age, in our culture. Uh, 57 to 59% of, the, of Gen Z want to be you know, influencers. Like that's what they want. They want influence. And it's interesting that we talk about this term. It's because uh, um, the, the, we desire as a nation to put people in a position to have influence and power and to be somebody. Uh, but, but which a platform is not, a, is not the issue. The question is, do you want to be godly? If God puts you in a platform, so God's going to raise up their son, John the Baptist, he's going to have a platform, he's going to be pretty famous. But he was godly as well. The question is not whether you have a platform or don't have a platform. The question is, are you going to be godly or not? 
Are you going to be godly or not? So uh, he, he, Zechariah is a godly man. Elizabeth is a godly woman. We live in a day where no one wants to be, not many people, I should say, want to be like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Just live an unassuming, godly life. No one really knows them. Just follow Jesus till he comes back, die, and be forgotten. Like that should be like that should excite you. Like man, I want to I want to honor Jesus, walk with Jesus, follow Jesus, and and if if no one remembers me at the end of my life, awesome. Uh, as long as he remembers me, as long as I'm going to be in his presence forever. Now, if he makes you famous and he gives you a platform, praise be to God. But your goal and your objective as a Christian should be to to walk upright, to walk godly lives, like Zachariah and Elizabeth, this godly couple, and they want to raise godly kids, but they're not yet parents. They're not yet parents. And so let me ask you, in your, in, your, in your life, would people look at you and go, man, we're godly, you're, you're, you're a godly couple, or, you're, or you're, when you're single, or you're a godly single dude, gal, are you godly? Well, man, I wasn't, but then I got saved, and now, uh, man, I'm writing, a, God's writing a new trajectory, giving me a new legacy, a, a new lineage, and that, that's what we're praying for, is that our legacies, our lineage would point to the one God we worship, that's Jesus. And this is what we see happening with Zachariah and Elizabeth here. But right now, they want to be parents, but they're not because they're, Elizabeth is barren. They can't have children. And now so much time has passed, they've gotten what is called advanced thin years. And so, you know, the Bible doesn't really use the word old. I use the word old. So if you, as you get older, just know you're just getting advanced thin years, just so you know. That's the, the Bible's term for that. So someone asks you, it says, hey, man, you're looking old. Say, advanced thin years. That's what, I'm, that's what I am. And so they've been asking the Lord for decades for a child, and they have not seen God deliver on this desire. Let me ask you, what in your life have you been asking the Lord to do and you don't see it coming to pass? Will you remain godly? Now, some of you know the story, and so you know that God's going to give them a child. His name's going to be John, and that guy John is going to be John the Baptist, the forerunner for Jesus, kind of famous, kind of cool rock star dude uh, who lives in the wilderness, got dreadlocks and beards, and, you know, eats locusts and honey. Like, cool dude. Like, it's a cool dude. I think he is, because I'd like some hair. Um, but... Uh, just awesome guy, right? That's what, that's what he is. But th- these parents don't know that that's going to happen yet. Yet they're still godly. Even they're praying, God, will you give us a child? Answer no. Will you give us a child? Answer no. Will you give us a child? Answer no. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, maybe 50 years has gone by. No, 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 no. And they're like, we're going to still worship you. We're not going to deviate from your word, will, and ways, Lord. We're going to, we're going to, seek you, we're going to honor you, we're going to praise you. And more than that, I want us to see that not only have they been obedient to God, uh, walking according to his word in ways when he won't answer their prayer, but God has been silent for 400 years. There has not been a prophet since the end of Malachi. 400 years of silence, no prophets, no pastors, no preachers, no one coming to, to tell God's people any more than he told them at the very end of Malachi. Just imagine, so 400 years of silence, generation after generation after generation, waiting for God to speak, waiting for the Messiah, and they're 400 years in. And then they've been praying, they've been asking God, will you give us a child, will you give us a child, give us a child. Silence. Just imagine that for a moment. And they're walking in upright, godly lives, following, and this is blameless, not that they were sinless, but they were in all that they could it, it, walk according to God's word in one ways out of a true, contrite heart of worship. That's Zachariah and Elizabeth, even when God wasn't answering their prayers. And then God breaks the silence. He breaks the silence with, from their prayer request and also 
Israel's silence that he has had with his people. In verse 8, it says this. Now when he, this is Zechariah, was serving as a priest before God. That's his job. He's a priest. He, he, he goes to the temple and he has different duties. He's, he's on a team of pastors, if you will, a priest who perform different duties in the temple. And um, so he, he, he's being enlisted to go to a, do a specific task. Uh, it, it, in, before God, in his division, when he was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple uh, of the Lord and burn incense. And so what he's going to do, he's going to perform this duty of, 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 of burning the alt- incense on the altar of incense. And what this duty is hand-selected and picked for this job. And in verse 10, and, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So what, what this is, is, is the altar of incense, God, the priest goes in, he's going he's to uh, uh, light the, the incense. And it's literally called the altar of incense. And the people are outside praying. And the reason being is because prayer is, the, or incense is this, is this symbol of, of prayer. It's what it is. In Revelation 8, we're told that, the, that God views prayer like incense. So that, that the, the prayers of the saints or the Christians are like incense. It smells good to him. So God loves it when you pray. It's like good aroma. Like, and so you want heaven to smell good? Pray more. Like, that's it. Like, that's what it is. Pray, the prayers of God's people are like, smell good to the nostrils of our Lord Jesus. That's what it is. And so uh, Zechariah has gone to, to literally light and, and the incense. He's literally praying. People outside are praying. He's in the presence of the most holy place with God, where God's presence is going to dwell. And then verse 11, what happens? God shows up through an angel, and it says this, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. Now, it's important for us to see this. It says an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. We're going to see this as we study the book of Judges next year, that the angel of the Lord often shows up. The angel of the Lord, when it's capital D, capital A, angel of the Lord, it's usually referring to the, the uh, pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is about to be born incarnate through the womb of his mother, so this isn't, this isn't Jesus showing up. This is an angel who he'll tell us his name later is Gabriel. Gabriel, an angel of the Lord. Um, so he appeared to Zechariah, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. This is like what, what you should see. I want us to see this. I just thought of this. As you pray, you should see that immediately when your prayers go out, God hears them and is right there present. He's right there present. What, 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 uh, what Zechariah is getting to see in the physical realm is what happens right now in the spiritual realm. When you pray, God is present. His messengers are there to deliver the mail. Uh, so you got the mail, share what you need. Uh, also, he has messengers who want to speak to us, and he speaks to us through his word. Uh, so this angel shows up to speak to Zechariah. He speaks to him. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Which prayer? This one. And your, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call, him, call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. This is awesome. This is awesome. What's really, really even more awesome is how significant this moment is. Not only is God breaking the silence, but God is again, that Luke is telling his story in a unique way uh, because the temple mount, where, where Zechariah would have 
went into the temple. Uh, that temple mount, what Herod did, this fake phony king, he built his house on the same playing field as the temple. Like the temple was the highest point of the city. And so Herod was like, I'm the highest point in the city. So I'm going to build my temple right next to God, or my house right next to God's temple to show that I'm really the king over them. So what's happening literally in the physical realm is that while, while at Herod's house, he's, he's posing as a fake phony king, God is entering into the temple foretelling of the man who would foretell of the coming of the king of kings. The Lord Jesus. And so this is what's happening in this moment. And so the, and what, what's next is we're going to see that, that God is, gonna break the, is breaking the silence. And he's gonna, uh, what we're going to see in a moment is that he's going to speak uh, specifically to some prophetic things that, um, that, that, that has been told in, in Malachi 3. But before we get there, I want us to see that this angel, this messenger, he has this word from the Lord to Zechariah. And he tells them that his prayer has been heard. His prayer has been heard. I just want you to know if you're a Christian, you're in Christ, Jesus intercedes on our behalf day and night. Your prayers are being heard. Imagine, you ever feel like your prayer's not being heard? Like you're lying if you, if you didn't think that, like at some point. Like some of you are like, man, I don't know if you heard that one. Like did that one get through? Year after year after year, this couple has been praying, asking God for certain things. What is it that you've been asking God for to do miraculously in your life, in the life of your family members, your friends? And, and maybe some of you are, are living testimonies of the prayers of other people. That, you know, man, I was, had a hard heart for years, and then God showed up. He, he saved me. He changed me. It's a significant moment here. And he tells them that they, he will bear, they, his barren wife will have a son. And she will call his name John. And then you'll be joyful and glad. And other people are going to rejoice at this too. This is awesome. This is significant. And the reason why this is significant is in Malachi 3.1, who this child is that is going to be in the womb of of Elizabeth. Malachi 3.1, this is the last book of the Old Testament. And like I said, it was written 400 years before Jesus. It says this um, in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord uh, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple come in, in the messenger of his covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is, the, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, which is the God of angel army. Uh, and so he said God is speaking to his people at the end of Malachi. This is the last book of the Old Testament. It's going to be 400 years before he's going to speak again. So imagine this. 400 years before God's going to speak again, he's got here. Here's my last words for you. I want you to hold on to these words. I want you to cling to these words so that when you see them happening, you know, like, you know, uh, things are happening. He's saying, I'm speaking. He's, he's also saying, I'm coming. Hold tight. Uh, hold on to this message. Before I come, he says this. In humanity, before the Messiah comes into human history, he foretells that there will be a messenger, a preacher, a prophet who will come before the, the, the Messiah to prepare the way, he says. And so he says, uh, prepare, prepare the way for the Lord you seek. This is the Messiah who we know as Jesus. So before Jesus, there's going to be this forerunner, this, this one who's going to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. This is, this is Jewish history. This is God's people. They're waiting for this guy. Just see this. They're waiting for this guy. Zachariah and Elizabeth are waiting just for a child. God hasn't spoken on that. God's people are waiting for the Messiah. God hasn't spoken on that. He's been silent on both fronts. And here in one message with one messenger, through the message of, uh, of the angel Gabriel, he's going to fulfill both their prayer request and the longing of Israel's heart for their coming Messiah and for the forerunner who would precede the Lord Jesus. This is all happening at once. 
Malachi 4, 5, and 6, these are the very last words of the Old Testament. They say this, but then tell us uh, this, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is the coming of Jesus, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with utter destruction. This is an Old Testament prophecy about the coming of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. This is the one who will be in the womb of Elizabeth. Luke is going to explain this more in a moment, but I want you to see the prophecy prior. What was written 400 years before this time. God said, hey, I'm going to send you uh, uh, the Messiah. But before that, there's going to be a messenger who comes to prepare the way for the, before the Messiah. And this will happen, he says, uh, around the temple. This literally, he will come into his temple. So the temple must be around. Why is this important? This is important because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. There's no more temple. So the time, there, this, is, this is what Luke is doing. He's giving us a real time frame that John the Baptist had to come, Jesus the Messiah had to come, and the temple would then be destroyed because we don't need a temple anymore because the Messiah fulfilled all the requirements of the Old Testament law and is for us our sacrificial lamb who was slain. This temple being destroyed is, a, is not a, a sad thing for Christians. Why? Because the, the king reigns. Jesus is alive. There is no need for a temple. There needs, there needs no, be no sacrifice. You don't have to burn incense so your prayers get to heaven. You get to go to God directly. This is good news. And God, this was for God's people. And so they were waiting for this day in which the Messiah would come and the age of the temple would go, go by the wayside and that they would rule and reign with the King Jesus forever. That's what they were waiting on. And it happened. And it happened. And we're the recipients of that. Christians, this is, this is what we, 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 we celebrate at Christmas. The coming of the king. And so this is important because there was 400 years of silence. And then God said, before the silence, he said, just to let you know, I'm not going to tell you the day or time, but I'm coming back. I'm coming. And before I come, there's going to be a forerunner, a messenger uh, that, that will prepare the way. And he's going to come in the spirit like, like Elijah. And he's going to make ready the people. He's going to turn their hearts. They're going to repent. There's going to, be, there's going to be this guy. Wait for the guy. When you see the guy, you'll know the time has come. Zechariah, Elizabeth know this. They're godly people. They've studied the scripture. They got the book of Malachi. They're holding on to this promise. But there's been silence for 400 years. Now God breaks the silence. He says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the prayer of your wife. I'm going to give you a kid. But also, this kid's going to be that guy. He's going to be the forerunner. He's going to be the one. He's going to be the one that Israel's been waiting for, who's going who's to be kind of the, the signal to go, hey, Messiah's almost here. This is awesome. If you don't think this is awesome, I don't know. Maybe I did a really bad job of explaining it. This is awesome. This is awesome. God has heard the prayer of both his people and, 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 and Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's answering their prayers through this promise of sending the son, their son, John the Baptist, to, to do this. Here's what he says he's going to do. Here's how he's going to fulfill what Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says. He says this, For he will be great before the Lord. He will not drink wine or strong drink, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother, mother's womb. So what's, what's happening in this moment, they're setting their, 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 God is setting their kid apart. Before he is born, he's being set apart. He's being dedicated to the Lord. Another thing I want to see here is that he's being dedicated and set apart from the womb. 
God is looking, and this is going to sound, con- well, it's going to sound controversial. It's going to be controversial, but here's the reality. From the womb, John the Baptist is set apart. God is looking at the womb of Elizabeth and not going, clump of cells. He calls the, cl- the cells John. He gives them his pronouns. He gives them everything. He's just real controversial. Like, that's what God does. He's a he, and I love him. That's what he says. He sets him apart. So I want us to see here, God is pro-life. We serve a pro-life God. I know that's controversial, especially in our city, especially in our city. When our elected officials have, have chosen to use a half a million dollars of our taxpayer money to fund the murder of innocent children. And some people don't like that I say it that way. They'll get real offended. They'll talk about it being reproductive rights. And, and I've gotten into, uh, people have said many things to me over the years about this and our position on this. But we're pro-life people because we serve a pro-life God. And when, when they get upset about it, they're like, well, you know what? Let's talk about some nuances. You don't understand everyone's situation, the nuances, and all these things. I'm like, oh, cool, let's have those conversations about nuance. Let's do it. Let's talk about Margaret Sanger. Let's talk about the nuances of eugenics. Let's talk about, let's go back and to look at the, the, the legacy of Hitler and how that is actually the birth of Planned Parenthood. Let's talk about it. You're like, really? I didn't know that. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Not now. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the nuances of it and how the reason why abortion clinics are put in certain uh, zip codes to eradicate the uh, certain races of people. Literally, that's the story. That's That's true. That's well documented. That's factual. And so I want us to see we are pro-life people from womb to tomb because God is a pro-life God. Because all people were made in the image and likeness of God. All people. And they all have equal dignity. They have all equal value. They all have equal worth. And we believe that. We love that. We support that. And we are pro-that. And we see this with with John the Baptist, God, we see this in God going, looking at the womb of this, this, this child and calling him a child, calling him a, a human. Later, this, this clump of cells, so to speak, this child is going to jump, we're going to be told, with joy in the womb when he meets Jesus. This is, this, is, this is what God is so pro-life that he wants all life to worship Jesus, even from the womb. This is awesome. This is awesome. And so God will actually use the same term of the baby in the womb of, of both Jesus and John the Baptist. It's the same, it's the same t- term he'll use to five and six-year-old kids when he talks about later in the New Testament, those children who love to be around Jesus. They're the same term. So God used a five-year-old and a, and a one-second-year-old as the same children made in his image, equal dign- in dignity and value and worth. And some of you may have been, because of your past, or your, 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 where you find yourself in the present, or the, the sin that's been done against you, or sin that you've committed, you might find yourself in shame in, in regards to these conversations. Like, I don't like talking about this because this hurts. Hold, hold on. By the time we get to the end, you're going to hear about Jesus removing our shame. And I want you to know that Jesus does forgive sins. He removes shame. He, he, he does take care of, of what we've undone. He redoes and makes better. I just want you to see that. But here, what we, I want us to see that God is a pro-life God. He loves John the Baptist even from his mother's womb. He created him. He knitted him just like he does every other children, child. And so he says in verse 16, what, what is this child going to do? What is John the Baptist going to do? He's going to turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
He's going to bring people to repentance. People are going to get saved. See, God is pro-church also. He's pro-church. He's pro-worship. He wants be, he's, he's not content with seeing his people run in rebellion. They've, for 400 years, they've, they've been in silence. They've been, they've, you've seen generation after generation leave the faith. And then there's a few holding on to traditions. You have, you have godly people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Many walk away from the faith. How do we know this? Because when Jesus comes, they kill him. They don't worship him. Their hearts have been hardened towards God and his word. So when they see God made flesh, Jesus Christ, they want to crucify him and not worship him. God is pro-church. God is pro-worship. Verse 17. And then John the Baptist, what will do? He will do. He will then go before Jesus, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Again, this is fulfilling the prophecy back in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And what is he going to do? He's going to do exactly what Malachi said he would do, is turn the hearts of the Father to his children. God's pro-family. He's pro-family. He wants children to love their, their father and, and mother. He wants their, their, uh, the fathers and mothers to love their children. That's what he says. See, do you notice a trend here? <laughs> Our nation is anti-child, anti-Jesus, anti-church, anti-family. Like, do you see what's going on? Like, we live in a nation in a day, and, and people are like, why, does it, why do you have to be so controversial all the time? It's like, we didn't change. The world around us got darker, so the light looks brighter. That's what's going on. God didn't change on his issues. There's another one here. He says, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. God is pro-repentance. Our world is pro-tolerance. God is also pro-justice. Our world is pro-critical theory. Like, it's just, when we look at it, like, everything you see in our day and age is, is a counterfeit of what God has, has put forward in the Scriptures. He's a counterfeit. Because there's a counterfeit king who has a counterfeit kingdom. It's not Herod. It's, it's Satan and demons. And they, they don't want us to repent. They want us to just tolerate as we are. They don't want to give us new life. They want to take life. And so we have a nation uh, and, and generations of Christians who have left the faith. I don't expect a non-Christian to agree with any of these things. But I expect Christians to, to go to God's word and see what he says and submit to his word, will, and ways. The last thing he says John the Baptist will do is he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. See, God's people weren't prepared for his first coming. And I would say this, we're not ready for a second coming. We're not ready for a second coming. Meaning this, that there's a lot of repentance that needs to happen. Because if Jesus shows back up tomorrow, then we'll find our, ourselves in a, in, a, in a woeful spot. And so Jesus is the rightful king, and he's about to show up, we're told, through, the, through Gabriel, through the prophecy of Malachi to uh, Zechariah here, that Jesus is about to show up and he needs to get his people ready. So you're going to have a son. His, his name's going to be John. And John is going to be great before the Lord. He's going to be great. And Jesus defines greatness, if you remember. Jesus says, the greatest in my kingdom will be what? A servant. So what do we see? When John the Baptist shows up, he, he's, he's, he's about to baptize Jesus, and he says, man, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandal. I'm, I'm a servant to you. And then he says this, I must decrease, Jesus, so that you increase. This is how John the Baptist is great. Is he's not about self-promotion. He's about Christ's promotion. He wants to decrease so that Jesus increases. He doesn't care about his legacy as long as Jesus is out, up in front. 
he says this also, that John the Baptist will, will also be filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit meaning he's going to walk according to God's word, will, and ways, led by the Spirit of God. It says that he's going to be set apart, he's going to be under a vow. It says he's not going to drink certain drink, not eat certain foods. He says it's, it's, a, it's a vow, it's likely the Nazarite vow. What does this symbolize and show? It means that he's set apart. It means he's not trying to please the culture. He, he's trying to honor the Lord Jesus. The, he's trying to, to work for an audience of one, for God himself. And last thing we see, he's not only filled with the Holy Spirit, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, who, is God, who Elijah was empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And what are the results? It says there's going to be heart change, there's going to be repentance. Revival is going to break out. And the two evidence, I want us to see here, the two evidence of revival that is spoken to here is this, that God will turn the hearts of fathers towards their children and vice versa. This is amazing. When you think about revival, what do you think about? Like, do you think about, you know, dads loving kids? You should. You look at our nation and you don't see that. And so what would revival look like in our nation? Like, oh man, dads love their kids. And the father wounds being healed. Like, that would be awesome. Amen. How many of you in here would you be like, I would love some of that. that was, that's, what, that's what God says revival is going to look like. The beginnings of revival. It's so that when, what happens is God is a father and he has the father, uh, perfect father's heart. And he wants his fathers to have the, the same heart of God the father. And so he's going to change their heart. He's going to give them a new heart. He's going to make them new. And so what's going to end up happening is, is, is men who have kids, their, their hearts are going to be turned back towards their children. They're going to start seeing their children as a blessing, not a burden. They're going to stop opting for the cultural narrative and, and opt for God's view of blessing. And you're like, man, I don't understand it right now. Children don't feel like a blessing. Finances are hard. I don't know how this is true. But they're going to wrestle with that idea. And God's going to unlock their heart. And they're going to believe deeply that, man, no, children are a blessing. So then what are they going to do? They're going to cultivate that blessing because that's what you do with blessings. You, you don't just sit it. You don't just and you don't leave it there. You cultivate it. They're going to cultivate their blessings. And so here's the reality about kids. They won't be a blessing if you don't cultivate them. You've got to turn them into a blessing because sometimes they feel like burdens, and that's okay. Um, but God wants to, to, us men to cultivate our children. I always say this. The grass is not greener on the other side. It's only greener where you water it. If you're new to Texas, you'll see. In the summer, if you don't water it, not green grass. The other thing that's going to happen when God turns the hearts of men towards the children, men start wanting to be fathers. So you know revival is breaking out like, oh, dude, men, guys, like, I want to be a dad. What's, what's, I'll forget about, like, I, like I'm going to have a good career, but, like, I want to be a dad. And because I want to be a dad, I'm going to have a career. I want, I want to be a dad, therefore I'm going to make money. I'm going to be a dad so I can provide for my kids. I want to be a dad. I want to be a dad. They, so they, 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 they start to, they desire to be a father. They, so then some who can't uh, uh, maybe have produce biological children, they start looking into fostering, to adopting. Or maybe, maybe even they have some of their biological children. They're like, man, I want to be a dad to these, these kids that don't have dads. You start to see that change in the hearts of men. Like, why is it men? Well, notice here, he says the fathers, it will happen to the fathers. Because the way of the man will, will go the way of the family and the way of the culture, the way of the nation. Moreover, you see often among women that it's more likely that they desire to have children. They desire to foster. Oftentimes, it's the man who doesn't want to. And so men will also then begin to have a desire to leave, to serve, to love their wives as Christ loves the church, to then provide, protect, and not ignore or neglect. So, not, so now they want to be responsible for the children they have. They're like, man, that's awesome. I love responsibility. So then they go after their children's heart. 
That's what it looks like to be a Christian father. You, may, maybe you became a Christian after you've already been a father, so now you want to you have devotions with your kids. You want to have a relationship with your kids. You go on dates, adventures. You want to cultivate the hearts of these young children that God has given you these blessings so that they would love, worship, and obey Jesus like you now have. When that happens, you can go, revival is on its way. Just look around our nation. Wouldn't we need that in our day and age? Amen? Like what, like I, Even non-Christians go, I think we should have some of that. And then what about those with father wounds? We see in Malachi 4 that, that God's even going to turn children's hearts back to their fathers. And so all of a sudden, guys who've been hurt by their father, uh, or, and ladies who've they, they've been hurt by their father, the father heart of God is going to be poured into you as well. And all of a sudden, you want to start honoring your father in ways that you may not have once honored him. So maybe that leads to conversations, and maybe that leads to honest, being honest about your hurt, uh, honest about your bitterness, honest about your resentment, honest about your own sin, honest about sin that's been committed against you. And you start to forgive because God the Father has forgiven you. And then you start, if possible, seeking reconciliation when it's possible. Then at the end of it, you're like, man, I'm really thankful that I went through this really hard process and that God dealt with me in kindness. Start to see that in our nation, you should go, that's a work of God. We talk about revival in our day. Many people just want to see big, big rallies with big events with people singing songs. I'm all for those things. Let's do it. Throw the Jesus party. I want to start it. Let's do it. But I want to see men leave there. Families changed. Legacies changed. The city changed. He says when the, the coming of Jesus Christ, before the coming, John the Baptist is going to do that. He's going to help prepare the way. And our job as the church is we're now also continuing the ministry of John the Baptist. We're preparing the way for Jesus' second coming. The second thing in revival we see is that hearts change, resulting in repentance. He says the disobedient to the wisdom, of the, the, their, their hearts are turned towards the wisdom of just, the just. They get new hearts. They admit that they're wrong. They agree that God is right. They change. It's the work of God, work of the Spirit of God. This is the work of revival. It's what we're praying for in our land. So what do you do until then? What do we do until then? And what do we do until the Lord Jesus returns the second time? We do what they did. They waited and worshiped. Verse 18 through 23. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. See, he's old, she's advanced. Guys, take note. You get old, your wife gets advanced. God's people have been waiting for 400 years. God has been silent. Zechariah and Elizabeth have been waiting long for a child, 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 years. No child. Now this angel shows up, and he, does, he's not, he doesn't doubt that the angel's there because he's in the altar, uh, he's in the presence of God. He knows that oh, no, God's showing up. But he doubts. He doubts. And this shows us that even godly people doubt. But I need you to see, we shouldn't doubt the word of God. You might doubt, but you also might experience the consequences of your doubt, like he does. And this is what happens. This is just, I'm just telling you what it says. And the angel of the Lord said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand, just imagine, I stand in the presence of God. It's almost like gird your loins type conversation. Like, hey, Zechariah, you've been praying for 50, 60 years, bro. I showed up. Like, I'm full dressed out in my, my, my gear. Like, I, I'm, a, I'm a warrior angel. I came from standing in the presence of God. I'm in your presence. You just prayed, and I showed up and answered. So I just want you to see this. Some of us, we pray, God answers, and we're like, oh, I don't know. Just be careful. 
He's like, I came here to speak to you, to bring you this good news. This should be a celebration. This should be awesome. God is answering your prayers. How many times does God answer our prayers and you're just like, oh, well, now it's going to be harder. Oh, God's giving me a kid. Now I don't have money, don't have a car, don't have insurance, don't have this, don't have that, don't have, uh, the, the, things aren't lined up. Like this has happened to us. Every kid we lose a car. Like that's just the thing. Like it's just been the thing. And so like just a mat, you're like, man, God gave you the blessing, but now you got the burden also. And like that's us. We are Zachariah. God shows up, says, I'm going to answer your prayer. And then you're like, yeah, but Really, now, God, like, couldn't she have been 30 years younger? Imagine she would have felt better during pregnancy. Yeah, I'm answering your prayer. This is, and so this is what he says. Behold, you'll be silent. You're going to shut up. And unable to speak until the day these things take place. So until your, your wife has a child, can't talk. Why? Because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. He's not saying I'm not going to, he's not, pun- he's not like, hey, I'm going to punish you. He's just saying, hey, get, you're going to, to prove that this is legit, I'm going to silence you. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. So he's like in there and they're wondering why this, de- he, he, <laughs> wondering at his delay in the temple. So he's, his prayer went long. And when he came out, he was unable to speak with them. And then they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. So they're like, oh man, God showed up. And he, he did. And, they kept making signs, uh, but he remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went home. So what God did was God said, so I've been silent for 400 years. Uh, you've waited, you've prayed. I spoke, you doubted. You get to be silent now. 10 months, not for 400 years, but here you go. You're going to be silent, Zechariah. And this is what's awesome. What does Zechariah do? He continued his job. I just want us to see this. He kept serving in the temple. He came out, and he, he was like, hey, I can't really speak. So he's like drawing on things, making signs, you know. Um, and and, and he, he's trying to tell them what happened. And in verse 23, says, and when the time of his service had ended, he went home. So he, he finished his, his commitment. He kept working. He kept worshiping. We don't get to know the countenance of, of his face and his action here. But we're told earlier by Luke that he is a godly man, that Luke heard this after all this came to past so he remained godly he remained diligent he kept working he kept worshiping until jesus comes back will you do the same we keep working we keep working in a godly manner even if god shows up answers your prayer and it's not in your timeline your timing and it's frustrating from time to time maybe will you be silent and just keep getting to work not hardening your heart but worshiping god with all your heart will you do that this is exactly what zachariah and elizabeth do even when people look down on them because of it. And this is what we're going to see in verse 24 and 25. What we see next is that God is ultimately the one who has the last word. He has the last word. After these days, his wife uh, Elizabeth conceived. So apparently his countenance wasn't too low. He wasn't too bombed because he went home and he was able to communicate in a way that you know, they were able to conceive. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. So she now goes silent. And she says this, for the Lord has done for me in these in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. So Elizabeth, after conceiving, just like God had promised, was also silent. So she's praying, thinking about it. She's praying, she's reflecting, she's thinking upon this. Uh, she's worshiping for five months. And in verse 25, it says that, that uh, the Lord had done for me 
for her in, in the days in which he looked upon me. So God looking upon her. He knows her. I want you to see this. God looking upon her. He knows her. He cares for her. He loves her. He sees, he's, he had seen her in all those years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, praying, 50 years, begging God for a child. He's like, I'm seeing, I saw you. I love you. I care for you. I've been there for you. I haven't forsaken you. I know you may have, and, and I know you may have thought so. So she's reflecting on all that in silence and prayer and meditation, thinking upon this. His eyes were on her. I need you to know this. God's eyes are on you too. He's watching you. He's there. He's near. He cares. But then it says that he, she says, you, you, you took away my reproach among the people. He's taken away her reproach, he says. But what does this mean? What does this mean? This word reproach, according to the, the uh, theology dictionary of the New Testament, it, means, it can mean one of two things. It can mean reviled or disgraced. Uh, in more context, let's, let's see it this way. Uh, people have likely viewed her without grace. That's what the word disgrace means, without grace. So they're looking upon her, uh, married to a pastor, priest, you know, Zachariah, godly dude, Elizabeth, godly woman. Y'all can't have kids? Where's the sin? Why won't God answer your prayer? What have you done to tick off God? How do we know that they have, those posture, that they have the same posture when Jesus shows up? And they're like, hey, whose sin made this, this, this man blind? Or, you know, was it his sin or was it the parent's sin? And Jesus is like, neither. It's so that I could show myself powerful. Why was she barren? Was it her sin? No. Was it his sin? No. Was it because God wanted to show himself powerful? So let me ask you, what is it in your life that God has not said yes to yet that is not because of your sin or because of her sin, but because God wants to show himself powerful. Will you continue to work and worship and honor the Lord? Because she said that, that she, was, she was disgraced or she was seen with reproach. This term, reviled or disgraced. So it's likely that maybe even she felt like people were verbally abusing her or shaming her, maybe a better way to put it. Like she, she was a godly girl, but uh, you know, many in the church were gossiping about her. She can't have kids. What's going on? Why can't she get pregnant? And then, oh, now she's pregnant. What happened? How come God's answering now? Is this Zachariah? He's probably too old for that. Like, like what, what, is, what is the gossip going on? And so she felt reproach. She felt shamed. And she's saying, the Lord has taken away my shame. He's taking it away. The, the emotional trauma she suffered, the verbal, the spiritual reviling or abuse that maybe she has felt, she is now, she says, it's been taken from her. And it's not just because she has a baby in her womb, but it's because the baby in the womb whom he points to. He points to Jesus. Get this. What, do you, if you remember, what is the thing that John the Baptist shows up when he sees Jesus? He says, we points to him in, in, the, in the book of John. He points to him and says, behold the what? Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world, the reproach of the world. He takes it away. He removes. Jesus alone can remove the, your, anyone's reproach. See, this is the doctrine of expiation. It's a big word, and I'll explain it. But it means that God removes our reproach. He doesn't just forgive it, though he does. He removes the reproach. He uproots it. He takes it out. He casts it away. So what he has done for Elizabeth is the same thing he wants to do for you and your guilt and your shame because of the sin you've committed or the sin that's been committed against you and the words that people have said about you. And you feel, I feel shamed because of other people's words. Jesus says, I'm going to remove your reproach i'm going to remove the reproach because of your sin i'm going to remove the reproach because of, because of other sin therefore he's going to look upon you this is what the lord jesus does he looks upon you for seeing your actual sin 
your actual reproach, your, di- your falling from grace, if you will, your disgrace, your, your reviling. And he sees the reviling of the word of, uh, words of others said to you. He sees the, the actions of others done against you. He sees it all and says, I want that man, I want that woman to be in my family. I look upon, I see their lust, I see their pride, I see their guilt, I see their shame. And I want to take that from them. Take, remove that from them. Put that on me and pay the penalty for their sin with my life. The reason why Jesus can remove it from you is because he took it upon him. What did the, the, what did the crowds do to Jesus? They mocked him. They reviled him. They spit on him. They shamed him. They abused him physically, verbally, spiritually, emotionally. All of the abuse Jesus took in the physical realm, but also takes away from you in in the spiritual realm. And so that you can live in the physical realm free of guilt, free of shame, free from reproach. It's God who gets the last word for her. He looks upon her, Elizabeth, family, child, daughter of God. For those of you who know, love, and trust Jesus, Jesus gets the last word. He looks upon you and says, child, son, daughter of God, saint, forgiven, redeemed, reproach removed. You're not a saint plus reproach. You're cleansed, forgiven, redeemed. This is the offer God makes to the Christian. This is what he gives to the Christian for trusting in Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian, that's the offer to you. Do you want your reproach taken from you? Trust Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Give your worship to Jesus. Give your heart to Jesus. Give your sin to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do love you. We thank you that you are our sin-atoning sacrifice. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We, we, you do get the last word, and you have had the last word. And by breathing your last words, Jesus, you said it is finished. Sin has been dealt with once and for all. And so for anyone who would put their faith, trust in you, Jesus, you not only remove our sin, but you remove our reproach. You take away our shame, our guilt, what we think about ourselves, what other people think about us, and you replace that with how you view us, sons, daughters of God, adopted heirs of the King of Kings, forgiven, cleansed, free. Help us to see ourselves like you see us, Lord Jesus, I pray.